This week has been the usual welter of confusing and disturbing statements, speeches, <laughs> political posturing that we always get. And this morning we're going to make, or this afternoon now, make a stab at trying to sort it out with the roundtable. But how do you really feel? <laughs> we'll find out. As always, we got a great roundtable. So introductions first. Tim Paget is the America's correspondent for WLRN, National Public Radio in South Florida, and a former Miami-based Latin America bureau chief for Time Magazine. Nancy Ankrum is a powerful voice as the editor of the editorial page of the Miami Herald. Always great to have Nancy back with us. Ed Pozzuoli is president of the Trip Scott Law Firm in Fort Lauderdale and is a powerful voice in the Republican Party. Boy, a Just lot of power here this morning. But <laughs> I it is true. The power in the room. Oh, boy. <laughs> it is true. So, uh, Nancy, first let me ask you to weigh in. I want to hear from all of you. You know, the president sending out this tweet last night and the statement he made on Friday saying, hey, you know, if I want to send these undocumented immigrants to sanctuary cities, I got a right to do it. And we ought to send them to the uh, places like San Francisco and Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats can deal with them. What, do, what did you think? When well, you I think it's I think it's President Trump doing what he what he does best, which is putting Democrats on the defensive. Mm -hmm. People who disagree with him on the defensive. I think it's actually a brilliant move. One I can't support in targeting specific cities. Right, and using these people as pawns. And, and using these people as pawns, absolutely, instead of dealing with their issues as they yeah. must be dealt with. I, I don't know, Ed. It, I said it before to the congressman, if, if it's true, that's what he wants, and it would be a win-win. I mean, undocumented immigrants in, in places where they feel safe and non-prosecuted mm -hmm. as they go through whatever process they need to go through, isn't that something that would be good for them? You would assume that the Democrats would have accepted this because that's what they've been saying. Immigration is a great thing, particularly illegal immigration. It's something that we need. That's what they've been saying. So they have sanctuary cities out in California. Nancy Pelosi's district is one of them. Send them there. Yeah. See what happens. Now, do I think it's a brilliant political move? Yes. But it's just a political ploy to kind of mm -hmm. push back on the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And let's understand this. Pawns? You, you, can, you can talk out. Wait, wait, pawns? Come on. To. No, no, but let's, let's talk about the pawn issue. Look, about a year plus ago, President Trump put on a table kind of a deal that would have gotten DACA uh, recipients through and about a million and a half of the two million of those folks, uh, a, a pathway at least to legal residents. And the Democrats said they don't want to solve the issue. They want this issue mm. as a campaign issue. So let's not, let's Tim, put, when fair? we talk about pawns, let's talk, let's put some balance to it. Yes okay. and no. This is what Trump was tweeting was really just bluster designed to disguise the real issue here, which is we have a completely broken system on the border when it comes yeah. to yep. facilitating people who are not trying really to cross into the United States illegally, they are presenting themselves to border officials. I just spent a couple weeks up in Lake Worth at the Guatemala Maya Center there. Mm. A lot of these people who are escaping climate change, for example, in right. Central America, mm -hmm. they are coming, getting processed, they get their ankle bracelets, and they're heading to places like the Guatemala Maya Center because that's where you go. This is all a non-issue. The issue is how do we fix this broken system of mm facilitating these people coming over, how do we start funding it properly, yeah. 
And that's that's something the president the, doesn't want to take wait, on. The president, wait, wait, wait. The president raised his hand and said we have an emergency on the border. Everybody said, and oh, the president's right. crazy. He, we don't have an emergency. No, the Democrats downplayed mm -hmm. the emergency, but the president said we have an emergency, and no one wanted to pay but attention to him four months ago. To the emergency, well, though, it's a wall that doesn't address no. the needs of that emergency. Actually, well, what the, the initial said piece was that there's a crisis that the president created. I believe. Oh that's yes, what the done. president right. created because Congress hasn't acted at all on this. Both Republicans. And Democrats yeah. haven't acted on this, but and we need to fix it. Acknowledging that actually people who were presenting themselves over the past few years that the number has indeed gone down. Sure. So well, what's the, the there is a difference, is there not, between someone who comes to request asylum, gets the bracelet, goes through the process, and mm -hmm. illegal, undocumented migrants who just come right. and don't go through the process. And those people are often heading straight to the agricultural right. uh, field that needs them most, right. et cetera. There is a big difference. Yeah. 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 But there is a difference between someone who presents themselves for asylum. If asylum simply is reading off a card, saying the right words to whoever at immigration is going to let you in or not in the asylum hearing, simply saying the buzzwords, which a lot of these folks are given the card to say, if it's a reading test as to saying the buzzwords, that's wrong. We need to really assess whether or not people uh, are in a position where they and deserve that's asylum. The that's broken. And, and that and is that's the part, the part that's part broken. I mean, if the wait, the wait for an immigration court hearing is now over 700 days, I mean, what you need to do is have more immigration judges, more courts, you know, right. fix mm -hmm. the process as broken as it is. Of course, what's really needed, and, and I think you all said it, is immigration laws need to be reformed, but I don't see any hope. Do you, Nancy? I see I mean, no hope. Congress has been unwilling to deal with it. We had Senator Marco Rubio who got got to the threshold and got burned but, by it and got burned by it unfortunately right. and and it has not been resurrected but the reality since, remains we are, we are joined yeah. to the hip geographically with a region that is sending these people by the hundreds of thousands and we have got to deal with and, that but we but we should have laws that do not that, that we have laws today that encourage human trafficking that encourage child trafficking that encourage people to travel How with so? what, children what laws because are but think about it if you have it it's well known in Central America, if you want to get in the United States, you travel with a child. And either, either they're your family member or not, but you travel with a child because there's a huge sensitivity around, around that. I mean, come on. So, think, I, okay, think about, you are saying that someone escaping, you know, Congressman was talking about funding being taken away from the, the very the place. The Northern Triangle. Right. You, yeah. you are assessing intent to someone, let's bring a child so we get in, rather than let's bring my family so we're safe. I would suggest to you that if I were in an economic situation that some of this, those in Central America are, I would send my child alone. I would take the chance for a, at a better life to get mm -hmm. to the United States as, and, and send my child out of this economic situation yeah. that yeah. they're currently in, which has no hope, and then send them up. So that's the, that's the issue. But that Michael, is exactly Michael hit the, the nail on the head, though, the Northern Triangle. If we really do cut aid to that region, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, as I said, climate change mm -hmm. refugees, the worst homicide rates in the world, if we cut off aid to that region, we can only expect more of this. So what's yeah. the U.S. role in that? The U.S. role is crucial. I spent a lot of time in places like speaking, Honduras. Money, manpower. Manpower and money. Getting USAID to accelerate these programs to do police reform in places like Honduras so that you actually 
bring the murder rate down, and that's actually starting to happen with some USAID mm. programs, so you don't have that pressure for people. Tim, we have to go to the source of but illegal do you agree immigration, the basic, not at the border. Do you agree that the basic, though, the, there's a basic premise that we should, as a country, protect our borders? So if we start at of that course, premise... Of course, okay. nobody's denying so, that. No, 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 not, no, not, uh, you might, you might be agreeing, but I'm not so sure some folks in Congress agree with that. So open borders shouldn't be, we should have the right to protect our border, and we cannot provide uh, benefits to just everybody who shows up. On I mean, that that's note, the bottom line. Quick break, and we will be back with a roundtable in fuego. <laughs> Welcome back. We are in the midst of the roundtable. Ed Pozzoli from the Trip Scott Law Firm, Nancy Ancrum from the Miami Herald, Tim Paget from WLRN, the America's Correspondent there. Let's talk a little bit about Venezuela. It's a dire situation. And this week in Washington, Senator Rick Scott made a speech to a think tank, conservative think tank, and he said something really hawkish and kind of out there about the possible use of U.S. military to deliver humanitarian aid. Let's listen to what the senator had to say. There's only one option left to get rid of the, get rid, get aid to the people of Venezuela. It's something nobody wants to talk about. It is becoming clear that we'll have to consider the use of American military assets to deliver aid. Maduro and his thugs have left us no choice. We'll talk about it. Yeah, we will. And, and Nicolas Maduro and his people around him are, in fact, I think, thugs and, you know, don't know how to run that country. Uh, Tim Padgett, you have a tie there. You have been to Venezuela. You know this issue so well. Is, it, is there any way that the U.S. military could, without getting into a shooting war, deliver the humanitarian aid that still remains in warehouses in northern Colombia? No, with all due respect, uh, Senator Scott is not right. Uh, that is not the only option we have left. And the, the, the risk that we run if we take the kind of path he's talking about is that when you get the military involved in any way, whether it's just military aid or, or some other way, you are still making a military incursion into another country. It would be a military invasion. Uh, technically. And what we need to do is start looking at ways, for example, the Red Cross recently was able to negotiate yeah. with the Maduro government mm -hmm. a way into the country to deliver international humanitarian aid that, that Maduro has rejected for years and years. That's the sort of thing we need to start accelerating in conjunction with other Latin American countries like right. Colombia and Brazil. And that kind of negotiated path is the way to go. He's not right. That military intervention is not our only option right it, now. Is there precedent for the military being a humanitarian force like that in other countries? Oh, sure. Yeah, when sure. they're welcome. <laughs> but this is a regime that is not welcoming yeah. uh, the U.S. military, and our incursion in that matter would only create more problems than it would solve. Yeah, that, that's, that's the problem. I mean, ultimately, this is about Venezuela and their citizens doing what is necessary to topple Maduro. Um, and as much as we would like to go down there and force our way or use our military might uh, under the guise of helping, 
uh, to topple that regime. I'm not so sure that's the best way and it will leave lasting marks. We have yeah. history in doing some of those things and I'm not so sure it's worked out all that well. I would rather, I, I, I think we just need to squeeze, continue to squeeze Maduro. And could we guarantee that delivering aid is the end game? I have mm -hmm. no belief uh, mm -hmm. whatsoever that that is what it would be, that aid would be delivered and we're out. So right. do you hear the senator say that and think there is an ulterior motive? Well, no. we are seeing a lot of voices in the Venezuelan right. diaspora who are yeah, becoming right. impatient. They thought that uh, we were going to see the toppling of this regime within weeks when Juan Guaido declared himself the, the legitimate president of Venezuela. Yeah. That hasn't happened. You're seeing a lot of uh, frustration in that community. However, just a few days ago, I interviewed the wife of the chief of staff of Juan Guaido, yeah. who was jailed last month yeah. in such brutal fashion. Right. Not even she would come out and say, yes, we should yeah. use military yeah. intervention. So the military hasn't flipped. They're still with, right. with, with um, basically. Maduro, basically. Yeah. Why do you think yeah. that is? I think they're probably hedging their bets. They are just not sure whether uh, Guaido really has the heft. Um, and, and Chavez has been good to them so far. Maduro well, and Chavez. Maduro and Chavez, yeah. and Chavez is dead, isn't it? It's a momentum <laughs> issue. I, I yeah. think some of those people would flip if it w if we had some momentum. I think right. we've gotten some yeah. momentum. Yeah. You've seen some flip. Yeah. If we get to the tipping we point, need, well, I'm not, not so sure where they are just yet. You know, that right. takes time. Yeah. Right. Tim, uh, this week, briefly explained, you had, you had said when you arrived this morning that you had been out to Southcom and you spoke to the commanding right. general there. Uh, what is his view or what was your impression of, I mean, he would be responsible, is responsible exactly. for all these military, U.S. military throughout the hemisphere. I, I put the question directly to him on Friday. What do you think of, of Senator Scott's uh, proposal here? And he really did not want to address it. I mean, he did not want to go to the same place that Senator Scott is going because, as right. you just said, he knows what concretely that would involve, and it would involve right. a mess. Yeah. Well, let's hope they get the aid and that the Red Cross begins to get that humanitarian uh, aid in quickly. Um, you want to take a quick break? Yeah, because let's we do. Have and then we have a lot more to talk about. We have more, exactly. We'll come right back. Well done. We are, we are so glad that you're here for the round table. I know I'm glad to be here because this is really challenging and robust and fun. But here's a very serious, another serious topic. I want to get into, and that is former Congresswoman Ileana Rosleyton. Uh, when she left Congress in January after 29 distinguished years, I mean, I admire the, her job as a member of Congress, she went to work at, for Aiken Gump, and you are a fine lawyer, Aiken Gump, huge law firm, powerful, the biggest lobbying firm in the U.S., and she is working for Aiken Gump as a senior advisor, she can't technically lobby for a year. Uh, they have a very active practice representing people who want to do business in Cuba. And I think the question becomes, is it somewhat hypocritical, uh, uh, uneasy, disturbing, that she would be working for a firm, even though her clients do not include any of the Cuban clients, she's working in Latin America, that she's working for this firm? So the answer is no. Uh, I, don't, I don't see it. I, I see that she, she brings a certain set of, of experience and intellect uh, in dealing with 
both, uh, the, uh, I don't think anybody can say that she is uh, anything but anti-Castro oh, and anti-Cuba, oh, right? And she, and I think it's a, a very much appropriate for her to be involved in trying to impact uh, that view inside of a firm, a powerful, influential firm like Aiken Gump. They're a large international law firm with uh, 900 uh, plus lawyers. And uh, uh, here's the issue. The issue is ultimately people, uh, companies in Canada, companies in Europe who do business with Cuba right. uh, need representation. Now, she's not going to be involved with that, but do you begrudge her uh, from working in a place that, that she might be able to change the culture? So I don't begrudge her at so, all. Okay, that, so with, with that said, and, and let's say that's exactly how, that probably is exactly how the congresswoman feels. Shouldn't you just be loud and proud about that? And on the website of Aiken Gump, there's nothing in, I know that it's a four-page biography because Michael Putney reported about it, that even mentions what a strong Not one word about Cuba or anti-Castro. A strong or, advocate yeah, for a free Cuba would be. And, and that's sort of To me, that, sign, that right? is the issue. I mean, Ileana Ross-Layton was my congresswoman, and she mm -hmm. was a great congresswoman mm -hmm. on, on, on all issues. I mean, she was very thoughtful, uh, very pragmatic. On Cuba, however, she often wore blinders. My only problem with this is I know all too well that back in the day, if a high-profile Cuban exile like herself had taken a job like this, they would have heard it from Ileana Ross-Layton. Right, that's true. I think that, um, you know, I, and actually I've talked to Ileana f um, quite a few times in the past few months. The editorial board of the Herald is about to bring her on mm -hmm. as, a, as a monthly columnist. I think that over the years that I have observed Ileana, Yes, she has taken a very, very strong position on Cuba. However, sure. she, as, as a member of Congress, she has not been rigid. She has not been so enduringly ideo ideological that I also suspect that she, she sees the change. She sees the need for change. She sees the need for some sort of engagement with Cuba, and I mm -hmm. think that Ed is right. I think that, oh, I love saying that, that Ed is right. I like that. <laughs> I like that, too. You know, uh, <laughs> as, the, uh, as the person in a big law firm sitting at this table, you know, we look at Ileana Ross Layton, and is kind of a South Florida icon. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's sure. safe to say. Yeah. She's a big, big personality. So. Sure. A, um, in a 900-person law firm now, characterize her position. Initially, it's probably not as uh, influential as you think. Really? I mean, uh, you, uh, they lawyers spin on kind of on their own, and and they they represent clients. There can't be conflicts inside that 900 illegally. But the bottom line is that she will have an opportunity to work with people and both mm -hmm. internal to that law firm and some of their clients. Mm -hmm. And let's let's some of this planning has to do with potential Cuba post-Castro. I mean, you mm -hmm. guys did a whole series of several shows on this a couple of years ago, and I think I came on and said, wait, I don't think that's such a good idea but just yet. a couple yet. of years ago, the, the policies were much different. No, no, no. The the but the, but the, hope, but the hope was much different, right? That yeah. it wouldn't, right. that the government yes. would change there, and yeah. it really hasn't. But I'm no. curious about yeah, the point not. that Nancy makes mm -hmm. as to how much has Ileana's position on Cuba and engaging Cuba evolved right. in recent years. Well, we will, find out That's in yeah. Right. Yeah. we will find out in op-eds in the Miami Herald, I hope, and I, and I look forward to it. Who edits those? <laughs> <laughs> right, before, well. we, before we run out of time, I, I do think we ought to make mention of the fact that Scott Israel, who was the Broward Sheriff, you know, a department, I guess, with something like 5,000 people, fire rescue, uh, sheriffs, BSO deputies, and a, a budget of nearly a billion dollars 
now says he is a candidate for police chief in Opalaka. So, I mean, uh, it, it that's will, not a done deal, but... Uh, can, can I just uh, clarify that? It's an Obalaka commissioner that's pushing that's for that. That's true. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and does is, this dysfunctional why? city need this suspended dysfunctional sheriff? No, it does not. What, what, why? Please take, him. Please take him. Please take him. Well, Obalaka is actually still under financial oversight by the state, which kind of yeah. means that any new police chief would have to be blessed by Governor Ron DeSantis. Right who removed Scott Israel from the Broward Sheriff's Office. Right. This city needs to remain in the good graces of this governor and is making those financial strides with yeah. Newell Daughtry and a pretty good financial team in yeah. addition to the oversight board yeah. um, at, the, at the helm. Why anyone would do this, and we do still need to find out what, what Commissioner big... Burke is getting yes. out of this. Yeah, well. your, your tweet this week hit, hit the nail on the head in that respect. What is the connection between these right. two guys? And no yeah, one right. has answered that yet. In the final take, 30, take my sheriff, please. In the final 30 <laughs> seconds, you know, I would like to pay tribute to Dwayne Wade, who made one of the most oh graceful Did you bring your exits. jersey? Where's your you jersey? Know, well, the number three, if I had one, I, I would wear it. Uh, boy, this was just a great week for Dwayne Wade, and he showed such class. Grace. I mean, a great mm -hmm. couple of games, and for all he contributed for the last 16 years or so. Dwayne, thank you very much. And thank you all for your contributions thank on the roundtable today. Thank Great you. to 